You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, good morning, good night, good whatever it is, wherever you're listening to this. Thank you very much for tuning in. As always, you know I appreciate you. It means literally the world that you would spend a little time with me today. I have just a touch of business to get to today before we get into this episode with Chris Turpin, which I am very excited to finally get to you. First of all, if you are the type of person that does the whole Spotify pre-save thing, the American Cyclops record, Tom, do you have anything sharp on you that I have talked about incessantly all year, is dropping officially on all the streaming platforms on the 9th. Yes, I had to check. June 9th, so coming up here very, very shortly, it will be available on all the streaming platforms as normal. So if you are the pre-saving type, if you could head over to Spotify and pre-save it, the link for that is, of course, in the show notes, and that would mean a lot to me. If you can't find it right away, it may still be processing on whatever streaming platform you normally use, but it should be there relatively soon. So check it out, June 9th. Stream it, stream it, stream it, because, you know, it doesn't pay much, but it pays better than podcast streams. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm just kidding there, folks. Listen to it wherever you want to listen to it, but it will be available on all the streaming platforms very soon. And, of course, we still have the vinyl pre-order that is uh, available at ToneMob.com slash store. So, yeah, there's that. Okay. That's enough business for one intro. Let's get into this episode with Mr. Chris Turpin. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have Chris Turpin from Ida May and... I mean, lots of stuff, really. How's it going, man? Very good, man. How are you? Um, fantastic. I'm glad we're finally doing this. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I know we've been online stalking each other for years now. Years, years. <laughs> I actually want to start there uh, because it's kind of it's kind of a funny story for people who don't know. But uh, so I found Chris's account is probably one of the very very first. Instagram accounts that I reshared something from. I was like brand new to the platform. I, I don't know how long you'd been on there at that point, but I I was literally like maybe maybe a couple days I had been on the platform and like I wonder if I can use this to do internet things. Um I had no idea what I was doing, but I was like, well this is a cool orange amplifier. Uh I don't know what this surf burst account is, but I'll reshare it and tag them. That seems like a thing that people do. (laughs) And uh, so I did just that. And I think that's probably about the time we started following each other and, you know, stalking each other online, like we said, commenting (laughs) on each other's things back and forth. That all led to a very strange thing that happened where you were in Portland and you went to Old Town Music. You played a very specific... (laughs) 1956 Martin 0017, which I think you liked. Uh, And you you decided to leave it there. 
I, unbeknownst to me, I was in the market, uh, my family rather, was in the market for my dad's uh, 50th birthday, I think it was. Uh, we wanted to get him something really special. And I saw that Martin was posted on Old Town's account, and I ran over to check it out, not really thinking I was going to buy it, but we did. And then you were like, I just played that thing. <laughs> I almost <laughs> bought it. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I started listening to your music clearly. I think you guys are fantastic. I honestly, I love it so much. I'm, oh, you, I'm so excited to get to do this. You, you are an amazing guitar player and the, the tunes you guys craft are, they're just, they're just right for me. I love them. Perfect. So. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> so that was a long, introduction but you know now we're finally all these years later the podcast wasn't even a thing yet uh i think it was by the time the martin incident happened but uh yeah here we are finally yeah no it was crazy man i mean the world of instagram i didn't really understand what it was or what i was doing on it or what the point of it was i was actually i had been working in a vintage and rare guitar shop um when i was working with my previous band and when I was off the road, I was kind of working there and part managing it on the weekends. And um, I've gone more full-time with music and was just missing geeking out about instruments all day, every day, especially mm -hmm. stuff and that sort of thing. So that's how I ended up using Instagram. I didn't, I, I still don't really know what to do with it. I just <laughs> started posting <laughs> stuff and sharing images and never really shared anything of the music I was doing, which in hindsight was probably a bit stupid. And still now, I don't think I've ever gone live or ever sung anything on my surf post. It's more just guitar stuff, really. But mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing the people that have been connected up with and the things that have happened because of it and people you end up, end up seeing what I've been doing and, and watching and following, which I had no idea is kind of remarkable. It's amazing what can end up happening. I mean, I, uh, I was talking to my friend, uh, Brian Fallon and he was like, Oh, you're going to talk to Chris. I love his music. And he seems like such a nice guy. And I'm like, Oh, you know him too. This is so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so. it's a small world. It's a small it, world uh, in terms of Americana music and independent artists, and especially those that love old guitars and songwriting. Just, yeah. It's, a, it's like a filtering process, you know, distillation of, of people and ideas, especially when you, you know, kind of work your way up and you get to play a few shows and meet some people and release some records. It's, it's uh, yeah, you, you'd be surprised how many people you bump into and get to know and even playing shows all over the world now in different places, you just run into people. <laughs> it's it's kind of astonishingly small you know i definitely came from the outside and like forced my way into this in a very strange way and <laughs> once i got a little more on the inside i was like there's really not that many people in this business like i'll get uh emails from pr firms and things and and they'll some of them will have their artist rosters in their signature and i'm like you manage like 20 bands that i like like, or you represent 20 bands that I like, and it's just this one person, you know? I mean, granted, there are bigger companies, but it's just funny how, I think from the outside looking in, this industry looks really, really massive. And I guess that's sort of part of the show. Uh, it's it's just really not that big. Yeah, it's kind of survival of the fittest as well, I think. So certain names and certain people is who managed to kind of, wade their way through and keep their heads above it all as well it's a it's a it's a strange way of putting it but it's yeah there's not many people out there um you know 
Uh, well, there's tons of music, but in terms of even getting a record out, man, that right. takes so much energy and planning and funding and years in the making that when you get to that, there's, you know, only few artists kind of, it's quite rare, you know, out of the goodness knows how many independent artists and music makers that are out there to get to a point where you're actually putting out a record on a label or through a distributor, man, that's, that takes some real energy, you know, to get that sort of thing rolling. It does. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's strange to even imagine like when you really sit back and look at how difficult it is to cut through. It's strange to imagine even being able to ever even get a paycheck. <laughs> it's like, wow, there's a lot of fingers in this pot. I can't believe I made $10. This is yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Well, I gave the long convoluted version of how we sort of digitally met and are still digitally meeting. Uh, this is through the internet after all. But what I don't know, like your full backstory. When did you start playing? When did you pick up the guitar? And how did that lead to where you are today? Oh, man, it's such a long story. Um, I don't really know where to start. I Well, I grew up in the UK and I grew up in church choirs singing sort of English I don't know, and, and British choral music. And I grew up with a single parent mum who was a piano teacher. Um, so there was always music every day in the house. That's how, how she earned her living was, was teaching piano. So home from school every day, there was piano music kind of drifting through the house. And um, yeah, that's kind of my introduction to music. And as, as I got older and hanging out with my dad's, he'd have his record collection and was listening to you know, anything from, I don't know, Steve Miller to Zeppelin to John Martin to Bob Marley and everything else in between. So, and he played a little bit of guitar. So clearly I thought that was cooler than um, piano music at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> so I started playing guitar pretty much from then on, from, I don't know, maybe 15 or something. I had friends at school that started to pick up guitars and play. And I kind of had this epiphany one day and went, I could play guitar. <laughs> So borrowed my mum's Spanish nylon string guitar that, that she'd had from a previous relationship and ended up jamming out on this guitar. And that kind of became my deal, uh, kind of my thing. And I just fell madly in love with it. And then from then on, long story short, studied music at college, at university. And that's where I met Steph, my now wife. And we started a rock and roll band that did pretty well. We were signed to an indie label and then we got signed to a major, we were signed to Warner and then signed to Sony and EMI and did three records there and toured all over Europe and the UK and kind of got a bit kind of a known kind of underground. We did quite well in Germany and bits of Switzerland and toured with some cool people like Gary Clark Jr. and even Brandy Carlisle back in the day. Amazing. Um, and then, yeah, that kind of fell apart as rock and roll bands do. And me and Steph set, set about kind of um, starting a new project, which is Ida May. Uh, and this is when the kind of my Instagram started. I was posting more guitars and, and things I was playing and learning about and sharing. And yeah, we ended up getting signed again to, uh, <laughs> this is a long story. Another no, major label. We got signed to Decca, uh, Universal and made half of this record and then fell out with them and then finished it on another major label. Wow. Signed by Seymour Stein. If you know who he is, he's an old kind of a New York punk and our man that signed the Ramones and Talking Heads and Madonna and 
finished the record with him, with Ethan Johns. And, and then we flew to America. We moved to Nashville. And on the flight over, they kind of shut down the part of Warner Brothers that we were on, we were signed to. So long, long story short, we ended up on 30 Tigers, um, owning our masters and being 100% independent. And then we just, with our good management and, and good booking agent, hit the ground running and started playing shows kind of nonstop, as I'm sure you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> up and down the US, anything from you know bars and Mississippi to stadiums and everything in between. We just said yes to everything. Playing for free jeans or, you know, you know, free drinks that was about it and, and kind of worked our way up to, to to what we have now and how we've been working so the start in music that's a kind of in a nutshell <laughs> the last right. decade in music which is kind of wild um but it's been a constant journey and it still is especially you throw a pandemic in the mix and it's um it's it's i mean there's a book in there somewhere i'm not sure what the um the ending <laughs> <is gonna be. laughs> yeah well, well you know this is this is probably not where a lot of people, interviewers in particular, expect to go. But anytime I talk to somebody and they've had all these different experiences, specifically with the labels and the business side, I get really fired up about it because um, <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit of a um, I don't I won't say I used to call myself a little bit anti-label, but I'm coming around to uh, certain things, especially like Dirty Tigers. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, I always want to hear people's perspectives as much as you can elaborate. You know, you you mentioned like you had several major label experiences and some of them don't sound like they're all that positive. Can you elaborate on like how did the DECA deal fall apart mid-recording? Well, it's, it is a really long, and I mean, if there are any kind of young musos out there or people in bands trying to... There's music. lots. There's lots right. that listen to okay. this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's really hard because we so we began I mean like ten years ago, you know. So the music industry was still in a state then where you could sign larger record deals, uh, and and you could kind of we, we, it was still in a state where we were making albums, you know, and we were quite old fashioned and, and had kind of you know rose tinted glasses on about how we wanted to make our music and we didn't want to compromise and we didn't want to do the major label thing too much. Um, so the first thing, getting a record deal is like, is, is difficult. You know, that, that kind of gives you the seat at the table. And I mean, for our, for our first signing, um, we'd done an EP with a, a, set, a great producer actually, um, called John Parrish in the UK. He'd, he'd worked on PJ Harvey and, and Aldous Harding and people like that. And he's a really interesting guy. So we had this name that had recorded four of our songs, you know, and on the back of this through partly through the course that I was studying, me and a friend of mine had booked our, booked ourselves a tour. So we booked ourselves a 36 date tour up and down the UK, which is impossible. There aren't that many places to play. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not that <laughs> no, big of a country. How did you know that? Ridiculous. <laughs> I was calling up pubs and venues in London, pretending to be a booking agent and just like, you know, trying to find the shows. And it was through all of a sudden getting this list of dates and kind of getting some artwork in and this EP that we suddenly had some interest from A&R people. And in the early days, we worked, we worked with a great record company, one at Independent Records in, in the UK. And they were very, they had a very kind of punk ethos to music. And um, they really allowed us to do exactly what we wanted. 
And that was fantastic in some ways and, and, and difficult in others. And first off, it was it, it's incredibly expensive to make a record with a band in the studio. Yes. Uh, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, you can rack up a bill of 30 to, you know, $250,000 relatively easy, <laughs> easily, depending on where you're recording and, and the kind of producer that you're working with. And so we, in our early days, we were very lucky to work in some astonishing studios because labels were still willing to kind of spend that money. That was kind of the status quo. So in that respect, labels work in a really kind of backwards business model where they have to spend a huge amount before before they stand any chance of making any money back and that's quite right. an old model which is beginning to change now so for you know we were lucky to work in ocean way you know in in, in los angeles and we were lucky to work in abbey road a few times and, and try out all these different producers which was i appreciate now just so lucky to be in those spaces and to be afforded that opportunity but in doing so, you have to sell, you know, you're giving a large percentage of what you do away, you know, 50% of anything that you make once you've recouped, you've paid off your debt, will go to the record company forever. So it's kind of like paying off your mortgage and then continuing to pay the interest forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what do you get by signing to a major label? Well, one, you get afforded the opportunity to work, you know, in these incredible spaces if you want to. Two, their name gets you to incredible places. So if you want to work with a big name producer that has a large fee attached to them, well, the, the major label is, is able to have the bait and the money to pay for you to go and work with these people. So in that respect, they can get their foot in the door to all sorts of things. And they, they also have a name and a roster that means something. So, you know, if you're signed to, you know, Decca like we were or Sire or something, it's Warner, it's, it comes with a kind of weight that there's a roster of artists you're then affiliated with. So, you know, Decker is Rolling Stones or some of the Beatles or whoever it is, or at the time it was, you know, the Lumineers were on the same label or whatever mm -hmm. that they're toting is the, the big thing that that label is working with at the time. You kind of fall in line with those and you become affiliated. So you have some kind of status quo, I guess. But that's also a blessing and a curse because you're then fighting for breathing space on a, on a label that is stretched and they really only care about the people that are making the big, biggest profits. So that's a kind of rough way of saying some of the positives of a label, I guess. And, and when it works, and I have, I have some friends that have done fantastically well on big labels, but the majority of my friends haven't done, <laughs> haven't done well. And terrible things can happen. Like you can be shelved and you can be smothered. So if, you know, Lady Gaga releases her album the same week as your little, you know, kind of smaller album on Warner or, or whatever lab, label you run, you're competing for airspace air and breathing space and they just don't have the capacity in-house, the press department and the radio to work your record as well as everything else that they've coming on for this larger record and it's all hands on ship, you know. But bear in mind, a larger label does have all that in-house. They have press and PR and, and radio, which is kind of amazing. And digital as well, you know, looking after people's social media and that sort of thing. So there are positives, but but um, I don't know, man. You you give a lot away, and you can get shelved. So yeah, you can. For example, if one of our big concerns is, is is that we would have gotten stuck, you know, a lot of bands have been kind of drowned on labels and and, and won't get out because they've signed these big deals, and the record company has invested I don't know nearly half a million dollars. In a, in a project that hasn't really made the money back that it needed to. 
And when you get in that sort of situation, the record company don't want to let you go because, you know, you've spent so much money yeah. and they want to recoup it. And the last thing they would want you to do is go off to another record label with a clean slate and all of a sudden all their hard work and money that they've put in is suddenly capitalized on by another rival record company, you know? So then people get stuck and held on labels for, for years and years and years. So there are negatives. You are kind of playing with fire when, when you get these kind of major, major deals. But now, from what I understand, a lot of these deals are quite different. You know, you know, I was getting, you know, we were working and operating as a band. And like I said, to record a band is a lot of money. If you're a four or five piece band, that's five mouths to feed. That's a big advance, you know, and a lot of hotel rooms and that sort of thing to get on the road. And mm-hmm. Whereas now you can sign someone with a laptop and you can throw that track up on Spotify, push it to the top of New Music Friday. And, and you'll know pretty quickly if that artist is going to work and resonate with people or not. Whereas in the earlier days of us operating, none of that existed. I mean, we got signed from MySpace, for goodness sakes, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> showing my age. But uh, so, yeah, that's a lot of waffle. But I mean, I could talk for an hour on this subject. And I should say as well that I think, uh, you know, for any music lovers out there, I should really, I mean, I'm sure you've gone into streaming and the lack of royalties and the, the kind of small amounts of money that's generated that way, even through a lot of streams. But getting a band on the road is incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, when we were first touring in Europe and going out on these, these larger tours with larger bands, you know, we'd be getting paid £500 to open the show. Well, when you're hiring a van for hundred quid a day and you've spent hundred quid on petrol and you're spending 250 quid on three hotel rooms that you're all sharing. Um, you're running at a huge loss just to get, just to play the show. And still it's really difficult to make shows work. So any opening band or support band or, or lower level touring artist, the margins that you're operating on are, are really, really thin. Um, and I think it's, it's well worth people, are pre- pe- more people I think are talking about this more and people are appreciating, um, the kind of, I'm not the sacrifice, but the, uh, you know, the energy involved and the belief involved in these smaller acts kind of sticking to their guns and making the music that they're making. Um, and I, and I, I hope with things like Patreon, we have a Patreon in which I'll be honest, it's, it's been a huge help to us. Oh man. The- through the pandemic and I had no idea what it was and we just kind of threw ourselves into it saying this could be an incredible thing and it's been such a joy and I really hope platforms like that begin to grow and more people understand what it means to be an independent artist and what it means to try and make art on your own terms and also to appreciate it as art you know I think the chimera and myth of the big rock stars they're earning huge sums of money they're out there but it's not it's not everyone (laughs) it's the it's you know who they are you know what i mean like Uh everyone knows the people there's very very few that it's like wow that guy secretly has a lot of money like (laughs) 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 it's like yeah you know when they're doing well right um at least at least you know at least when they're they're not struggling i shouldn't say that everybody's doing (laughs) well but at least when they're not struggling you know yes yeah but yeah i mean patreon has been huge for me uh, it's been a thing for me for several years, but as far as like being able to c- continue to do this and put out as much content as I've been able to, and you know, put the time in, 
uh, during 2020, especially, I mean, that really was, it, it's not a ton of money, but you know, it made all the difference in the world some months. Yeah, it helped pick up the patrons. Yeah, so thank you to all of the Patreon supporters. Seriously, it's 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 not much. It may not seem like much, but it is honestly huge. So thank you. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 I love talking about all of this stuff. Let me just stammer around here for a couple minutes. But you know, I'm a big believer in. In especially, I know things are different now, and I know that I view it very much through a modern lens versus what it was years ago. But I, I think you know, and I've used this example so many times. But like Billie Eilish and her brother made one of the biggest records in the world in their bedroom, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. I know not everybody can do that with every single style that's out there, but it's becoming more and more attainable all the time with the amount of technology and gear we have available to record. And as much as I love and appreciate the history and the vibe and just the awesomeness of these old, huge killer studios, I feel like, you know, unfortunately some of that might be going away unless they figure out how to offer more things because it's, it is so expensive. And and at some point, did you think that the majors are going to just stop investing in that entirely, except for, you know, the Jay-Z's of the world? Yeah. Uh, probably it's, so. It's something we think about quite a lot, actually. Uh, because we, we've we worked with Ethan Johns in our first album, who's a big advocate of live recording and, and kind of full band recording. I guess Dave Cobb would be kind of a more American equivalent. But mm-hmm. um we ended up, we self-produced our last album, which is coming out in July. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a shame because I think it, it works kind of two ways. If, if you don't have the, the funding for those big studios, um, there, it's such an art and a craft working a studio in that way. You know, the way, I don't know, anything from uh, Muscle Shoals to you know, Abbey Road in its early days to the, the Pyroca Studios and the Decca Studios, these great studios of old. I mean, the craft and the audio engineering and the production and the great producers from, like, you know, Joe Boyd to, you know, whoever it might be. It was such an art. And the musicians totally. are often picked to play on those records did that daily. You think about stacks, you know, these people would day in, day out, make these records and, you know, play bass just play drums so the, the 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 quality and the groove of these musicianships is just next level and sadly and also the communication between a group of band members like that which sadly i mean it, it exists in nashville still and probably in la i'm sure but in a, uh, over over here it's where we are at the moment in the uk it's it's quite i think it's a dying it's a dying art form not only in the audio sense but also in the performance sense mm-hmm. so i i do hope that people really appreciate and it should be sold almost almost sold to people you know audio files to say look this record was tracked live with a live group of musicians to tape you know we did this in, in two or three takes and the energy that you're hearing is you know the first time this song was ever, was ever really played with people like you're discovering it as we were discovering it and i think that's such a powerful powerful thing and it's why a lot of those older records you know from I don't know, Aretha Franklin or whoever it is, is, have stood the test of time so well because that energy, that atmosphere, that intensity, 
doesn't age you know whereas certain types of sonics and production ideas and trends do age so i, I think we're getting to a point now where i think we'll get to a kind of um you'll go to the big studio for a couple of days, maybe track a few things live, and then you'll do overdubs from a smaller space or from home or vice versa. You know, you'll do most of it from home and then go to the big studio for the overdubs and drums. And I think you'll hopefully find that some of the larger studios become kind of hubs where people can book space and come in and do certain things. But I think I worry for the more mid-sized studios because, yeah, you know, there's, there's going to be... Pe- less people are going to be needing to use a studio and block it out for four weeks and, you know, have catering. <laughs> I mean, <Right. laughs> it's not going to be happening anymore. Well, unless you like, you say, Jay-Z or just some huge artist, you know. Yeah, it's, it is truly, truly its own very unique, special art form, doing all that stuff. I've only seen it, like, on tours and, like, from the consumer side, but I'm very interested in it. And I, I've been into some, I guess, I guess I've got to, gotten to tour some really high-end studios, but I've never worked in any of them or done mm. anything real in them. But I have seen, you know, like you said, the mid-level studios, which are, you know, genuinely a huge step above a bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and what it takes to do all that stuff and the musicianship that's required is far beyond anything that I've ever been able to achieve. It's not even in my wheelhouse to be as good and as tight and as knowledgeable as these session musicians from from those days. It's it's insane. And then also the recording engineer and everybody else involved like that is an ins- you know what do they say it's like 10,000 10,000 hours to get good in anything. Those people probably have you know 50,000 hours. Yeah. The level of knowledge those engineers have, you know, from working through from, I don't know, the 70s onwards, or something, if they're that age, you know, the, the level of knowledge that I've had to gain working more in production over the last five years, you know, from microphones to preamps to compressors to vintage and modern gear, it's such a huge wealth of knowledge, um, which most people just completely bypass now. And you can call yourself a producer with a laptop if you've got something on a playlist on Spotify, you know, which is you're not a you're not a producer in the old sense and you're not an engineer in the old sense. It's this kind of new uh thing, you know. And you know, with plugins on on on, on your various DAWs, you you can say that you know how a Fairchild works or how an eleven seventy six compressor or a whatever works. But that's very different to actually being hands-on in a, in a studio with a real Neve console full of 1073s or what mm-hmm. have And I think as well, people will just, it's kind of devalued the studio idea. It's like, well, hang on, why do I need to be playing through a $200,000 desk or what have you when I can do it through my interface at home? You know, what, what you're recording through right now. <laughs> right. You know, it's kind of like, well, if, if like you say, Billie Eilish can do it, why do I need to be in the same studio that Tom Petty recorded in? What have you, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's fantastic in a way. Cause it's just, um, it's, it's democratized the whole thing, which is kind of amazing. But at the same time, I often wonder what has been lost. And one thing I will say for, for more modern recording, what whilst we're still getting geeky about this stuff is I think, and this is one thing that I'm, I'm really, really, uh, I'd like to stress in anything that we've done or those old records that you listen to and love 
is that when it comes to recording digitally, you know, you're always playing to a grid. You can see a line, you can see where the beat is and where the beat should be if you're playing to a click track. Same when you're singing vocals and you're tuning them, you can see where the note should be and where you've landed. And and it's very, very easy when you're multi, multi-tracking and doing various takes and comping things together to just make everything perfect, which is why I can't listen to a lot of <laughs> very modern music, uh, or at least I, 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 it, doesn't, it doesn't float my boat <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the same way, because it doesn't have, um, because it's so easy to iron out mistakes and faults. And if you're not on that line, then it's incorrect, right? This is what the, the, the plugins and people on tutorials online and YouTube tell us. And very sadly, that irons out an awful lot of the uh, expression and dynamic and, and creative choices you're making when you make a record. So I think we're getting to a point now where people, I'm worried that will be lost. So for example, with our last record, you know, we were, we were recording through a computer, through an interface. We'd spent as much money as we could on analog gear, and, but we still track the whole record live. Like we have a song called Deep River with Marcus, Marcus on it. And uh, that song was tracked in three takes, just me live with an, with an acoustic guitar, you know, not no click tracks, you know, and no overdub vocals, no nothing. We did that with a lot of the record because we were working, when we were working with Ethan, you know, we began to discuss the kind of emotional narrative of a take and a song. And, you know, when you're listening to someone sing something start to finish, there's a real journey in that. And if there's a mistake and there's an error, well, you know, if you tweak that or you change that, what do you really gain? It kind of feels to me like diminishing returns. So it's like, you know, whether you're listening to something from, you know, Stacks or you're listening to, um, I don't know, some of those early White Stripes records or you're listening to Robert Johnson, all of that is tracked live and you can feel this energy, the Carter family, anything that there's, there's an energy and a movement that comes in those takes that is lost when you work to a grid and you, and you tune things up too much. And also if you, you know, aren't willing to have spill working in small bedrooms, like, you know, like yourself or, you know, like, like we've all done, you know, where you're tracking an acoustic guitar and a vocal and you're nervous because the acoustic guitar is spilling into the vocal mic and vice versa. Man, you know, that's the dangerous place when you're not playing your songs and playing your songs and kind of performing them and you're breaking everything up into parts like that. It's um yeah, I think it's something people need to I wish more people would know about, especially when they're listening to our albums and how they were recorded. Um, because it's a real it's a huge creative choice and an artistic choice. And it really affects how a record feels and sounds and lives and breathes and becomes what it is, you know, and different, you know, it's horses for courses, you know, depending on the sort of artist you are and how you want to make music. It's not, not, it's not one kind of size fits all, but it's definitely a, for us, it was a real choice to make music warts, warts and all keep the mistakes in. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I'm, I just finished a, a record, a solo record earlier this year, and I'm sure everyone listening to this is getting really tired of me talking about it <laughs> because I keep talking about it. Uh, but um, and it's a very different thing than playing with a band because oh, I'm, yeah. I'm doing it all by myself, all pretty much at night with just this ludicrous amount of effects. Um, <laughs> but uh, most of those songs are 
one take, uh, sometimes two takes, and they're all. It sounds like it's it's really hard to pick out what's going on, but there's really only two amps mic'd up, and everything else is done through the effects and the and the playing and the dynamics. Um, some people are asking me like, "Oh yeah, what, what you know? How many guitars are on that?" I'm like, "Just one, like <laughs> <laughs> just one." But I purposely left a lot of mistakes in there. I I could have taken a lot of stuff out, faded it out. It's just this really weird atmospheric horror movie music. So like, I could have tweaked it to the end. Yeah, yeah, it could have all been perfect, quote unquote. But I left a lot of it in because I was just like. I don't know. I've come to this conclusion of if it sounds good, it is good. Yeah. You know, you know and also and that's how it's exciting. I always think of a quote. I think it was the Carter family were, were recording back in 1920, whatever it was. And Maybell had made some terrible mistake on the record and the A&R men were there. And she was like, oh, we've got to recut it. Like, please, can we redo it? But of course, it was so expensive because of the shellac and da da da. And the A and R man said, "No way! People, when people hear that mistake, they'll think, oh, what's going to happen next?'" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's yep. something to be said for that because I, I think for me, when I first discovered like what I knew were the kind of live recordings, I don't know, like Fairport Convention or or Blind Willie McTell or something like that, it was like all of a sudden I was transported through time to the source of like rock and roll and these musical moments. And I was stood in the room with them as it unfolded, you know, like, and I feel that about the Stacks takes with Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett or whatever. It's like, I'm in the room feeling this go down. And that is, I mean, unquantifiable <laughs> how exciting yeah. that is, you know? <laughs> it's, it's insane. When you really think about it, it's really powerful. They do this really cool thing in Nashville, and maybe you maybe you went there and saw this. I'm not sure, but we I love Nashville. I love going there and it's my home away from home. Mm-hmm. Um but I we went there and did a bunch of the touristy stuff and one of the touristy things that I super recommend to everybody is the tour of RCA Studio B. Um it's so cool. They take you through and they explain who recorded there and blah, you know, they give you all this stuff. But the one, one of the coolest things they do is they take you into the the main room and they turn off all the lights and they play, uh, they play Elvis. The track <laughs> there. And when you're in there, I mean, it feels like the ghost of Elvis Presley is in there with you. It's it holy unreal. Style. Yeah. It is incredible. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's it's so it's just so cool. Um, I don't know. I I could have stayed in there all day and just looked at the walls. I was like, this. There's so much. These thing. These walls have heard everything. Oh, it's it, mad. Yeah, it's so crazy. And then and then in Memphis, they've got the same thing there. You know, <laughs> with Sun Studios. Uh, excuse me, with Sun Studios there. And yeah, I I love these places. They're yeah, so interesting yeah. to me. We, we did a similar thing in our old band. We did a little bit of acoustic recording in Abbey Road. And we were in the main kind of Beatles room, you know, from the pictures. And we finished singing the first song. And I can remember getting like chills from my fingertips to my toes and my heart beating. Because I was listening through headphones, you know, to, to us singing. And uh, I, the echo of that room, I was like I'd heard that echo, the, the, that room sound on every Beatles record growing right. up. Like I just knew it innately. And all of a sudden it was us echoing in it. And it was the, it was the weirdest thing. It was quite, wow. it is mad, but you know, I don't know. And, and I agree about the, but the live recording thing as well. I, 
on, on our Patreon, I've been mentoring and, and teaching guitar and songwriting to, uh, to a fair, fair few students, uh, which has been just one of the best things I think I've done in a long time. But yeah, we're, we're beginning to get into recording EPs with a few people and working on songs and, and getting into recording. And man, you know, there's, there's a couple of recordings I'm like, oh, if you were just in a room with a band, you'd have done this in an half an hour right (laughs) right now like waiting through plugins and this and drum sounds and it's like oh god you know you go down that rabbit hole and you've been there for three days solid you know trying to get the drums to sound right and through midi notes or something and it's like oh man (laughs) it's a bit of a buzzkill recording that way sometimes you know it's a lot of energy to learn that stuff properly you know yeah it's uh it, it is i think when you when you're playing with the band, it's just it is something else versus the the digital MIDI drummer. You know, you can look at them, you can like give each other that knowing smile, and you know you're you know you're about you're both about to do something ridiculous. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so much better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep, for sure. Well, hey man, I before we get too sidetracked and just com- go completely off the rails, I told some people in the Facebook group that you were, you were coming on and yeah. there were a couple <laughs> questions we, we wanted to go over. So let me pull that up real quick. Well, I hope we haven't bored people. I'm not talking about guitars here. You know, it's always nice to talk to people about the industry and they're kind of, I don't know. It's hard, you know, to, to, to describe more of, holistically you know how, how the industry works and music and stuff so if i ever get too boring i'm sorry <laughs> well this is much more on topic than some of them have been i mean we, <laughs> we haven't even gotten to talk about aliens yet so you know, <laughs> There's still we time. Get there, yeah we still got time <laughs> all right uh here we go uh emilio rizzo he says uh do you have any concerns about touring with your vintage gear he's got so much cool stuff and he also made a comment saying, such a killer slide player, which is true. So. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, vintage gear and touring is a tricky one. Um, so typically, when me and Steph go out as a, as a, as a duo, I'll take three guitars and, and an amp. And if we're doing a larger show, it'll be a, key, a keyboard and two amps or something. So it's not a huge, it's not a huge setup. So for the vintage stuff, I have a lot of it. It's more, it's used kind of in a home studio kind of setup, and I don't take too much of it out. Um, but what I what I did find is again when I was younger and working vintage guitars and you know being able to tra- we were trading Blackguard Tellies and you know pre-war Martins and real mm. old amps. Mm. So I just got hooked. I was playing guitars well out of my league, <laughs> and. Um, you know, I was in my early twenties or whatever, and uh, any spare money I had from the road, you know, I would see things on eBay or Gumtree, and I would just buy them because I knew they were cheap. You know, and I also knew that, you know, I was selling, you know, pre-CBS strats to dentists. You know, and there's there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, it's you know, having a collection is a beautiful thing, and sharing the love and the historic purpose and. Uh, of those instruments is a real is a real big thing but at the same time i was like man these things sound so good i've got to kind of you know almost like you know 
conservationist. I've got to save some of these <laughs> and put them to work, you know, before I can't afford them. So a lot of the old amplifiers I have, I got for nothing. You know, I, I, I got an early, I got them for good money and I would trade things to the shop I was working in and sell them for, for more and make some profit and then put that profit back into stuff. So that's how I ended up affording a lot of the gear I have and, uh, and just finding bargains. And for me, amplifiers were my kind of gateway drug into vintage guitars um, because they were always cheaper. You know, you could buy, I mean, my Fender Pro Reverb 67, I picked up for nothing and, and all that. So kind of silver tone amps now are still really, really cheap in America. And then you can get sounds out of those. You know, I almost think a, an old amplifier or an interesting little combo amp will give you so many more varieties of tone with a kind of a few guitars than, than, you know, 20 guitars through the same amp, you know? So I kind of got hooked that way. And I found actually, this is going up to what I take on the road. Um, vintage amplifiers, especially old fenders, those designs are indestructible. You know, I've worked, I'm lucky to work with some great guitar companies now and I've taken a lot of modern stuff out on the road and it breaks, <laughs> it breaks. We were on a tour and um, I was using a modern amp, one of the bigger tours that we were on. And I think it was the, the fifth show, this amplifier would just shook itself to pieces. Like all well, the screws were coming out and the valves were microphonic and it was crackling and certain buttons were jumping. And I just got sick of it. You know, I'm kind of handy with a soldering iron. I can work out what's wrong with an old amp. So I went back to buying old vintage amps. I got this old silver face vibra champ mm. that I got kind of made re relatively bulletproof, you know, and, and put some, so the valves don't fall out, change, change the valve bases. But other than that, that amplifier is kind of indestructible and I actually carry it in my hand luggage. <laughs> so when we're flying, I'll take it through, you know, security and I'll put it under the seat in front of me like I would a, <laughs> like I would a handbag, you know. That's awesome. And it it works on US power and UK power and it's uh it's indestructible. And I've used that thing in front of ten thousand people and in front of four people, you know, and that amplifier, if anything goes wrong, I'll just change a valve and it's fine. If a cap goes, I'll I'll just solder it out and it'll be fine. You know, these modern amps with big PCBs, if that goes down on me on the road, I can't fix it. You know, I'll have to go and buy a spare or or get something sent to me or you know, so that's, I'm actually more confident in a lot of the vintage gear we own than I am the modern stuff. Even this, this little Princeton we have, the 64 Princeton that Steph has been using, it, it's not going to go wrong. And if it does, I know how to fix it because they're so simple and so such beautiful designs and so well laid out. When it comes to guitars, um, I don't really, I use an old acoustic, an old 1920s acoustic, um, which that is stupid taking that out on the road. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have a truss rod, um, you know, but someone before me is, is I think, strutted it up pretty heavily and, and put some new frets in it. And that guitar is so light. It's about four pounds. So when I check it in in my flight case and the baggage handlers throw it around, it's kind of so light that I don't think it, it will do itself any damage. <laughs> like it just can't. And all my other guitars are resonators that I take out and they're all made of solid brass so that they're, they're, they should be fine, you know. Right. But that little guitar is, is getting some cracks and some holes, but it's, um, it's not, I got it for like 200 quid, you know, it's not worth any money. Um, so I don't worry about it. I don't, I have a Martin D18 that I adore it's not an old one, but that's a guitar like 
I just don't dare take it out out on the road. Mm-hmm. It will get destroyed. So I mean, I the stuff like when I take electrics out, I use a lot of Gretsch's uh, and and Fenders. I use a Telecaster or a Duojet, and which are just the best sounding guitars. Um, and they're kind of kind of indestructible. They kind of work fine, and they're, they're modern equivalents. I've played a lot of old Gretsch's and old tellies and, and some are good and some are bad but these ones i i've got i've got lucky they're not the coolest looking you know i had this candy apple red telecaster that i'm currently trying to trying to get a better telly <laughs> <laughs> because it's just not cool man it, it's it's cool because it's a telly but man something about a brand new lipstick red telecaster i mean i love it but i need to up my game a bit on the cool stakes there my other guitars are cool i need to i need to do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. That's I hear nice. you. That, that stuff is kind of indestructible. A good old Fender amp. I implore everyone out there to sell your modern boutique amplifier, <laughs> <laughs> uh, your PCB amps, and just go and buy a silver face Fender or a black face Fender, a Princeton or a Deluxe, because um, you'll never have any problems. It'll always go up in value. Even if you bash it around, it'll be fantastic. But I, I will say, um. I really love these modern Vox hand-wired amplifiers. I don't know if you've tried any of those, but for the money, I think they're some of the best-sounding modern boutique amps that aren't boutique prices money can buy. Um, so I, I've been using those a lot in the studio and on the road in the UK. Um, so, yeah, that's my rambling answer. Is um, I don't use too much. I don't use too much old stuff. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. They're kind of like, you know, they're kind of like old old muscle cars in a weird way where it's like if something goes wrong with one of those you know <laughs> barring anything could you know disastrous it's like i could figure out how to change the spark plug wires they're not yeah. that hard yeah you know? <laughs> they're, they're right like, there anywhere you go any garage you go to they're gonna know how to fix it you know it's not mm-hmm. a tech, you know <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> my bugatti veyron's broke down well well that's yeah. it done. yeah and uh, i mean the same goes for a lot of my equipment, man, I'm a huge, you know, I know we're all boutique pedal lovers and we love the rarest gear and we all know that the next first pedal we buy is going to change our lives. Of course. And the next, you know, poly reverse delay chorus stereo pedal is going to transform our live rig. I know that, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the reality is, man, is I love boss stuff like i use a lot of boss stuff and just stuff that's indestructible i've had the same overdrive pedal for like a decade i'm embarrassed to say so i don't kind of go in with a lot of the current trends i tend to i'll use stuff if if people offer and they want me to try stuff i've and if i'm really interested in something I'll, i'll i'll ask people hey can i try it but really you know like i use a a zvex boxer rock and a blues driver and a, a boss reverb and an analog man fuzz pedal and that's kind of what i've used for forever <laughs> i mean if it if it ain't broke don't fix it right yeah that's kind of the way i am and when you're on the road and, and doing you know tiny openers to big shows man you just need something super dependable and i'm starting to get a little bit more boss hooked me up with this um, I'm, I'm trying out this gt1000 core which is kind of like a multi-effects unit and i was very skeptical but um, I spent about a month learning how to use it. 
<laughs> and it's been a, it has been a real game changer. So stuff like that, which again, for me, being a big vintage fanatic, having some multi-effects pedal on my board is completely blasphemous. But, um, <laughs> but man, I'm, I'm trying to stay hip, you know. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be with the kids. Yeah, I'm trying to do what they do, you know. But I mean, right. well, I'm profiling. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just can't do that. <laughs> Step too far. It's too. It's too much for you. It's too much. Yeah, I mean, fun for recording, but I'm sorry, I'm just not in that club yet. Maybe one day I will be. <laughs> I'm. I'm not either. I'm not. I'm just not. It's. I. I understand it. Right. I get it. I get why you would do it. And I've. I just talked to several people who just were talking about how much they love it. I just don't care. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm telling you, I am telling you, having, having, having had the opportunity to play some amazing amps and it's a bit like old stuff. Some is good and some is bad, right? We all know that. Yeah. I've, I've played bursts that I, I prefer an Epiphone, you know, Les Paul, you know, it's, it's not all fantastic, but I promise you, if you hear a real, you know, vintage, good condition, 59 Tweed Deluxe mm. with a, the old blue Jensen. And you're in the same space as that room, as, as that amplifier with a Fender guitar. It is a, a an astonishing sound. And I'm lucky enough to own a few amplifiers that I've, like I have this Tweed Princeton, you know, which is just, I'm like, man, you get in a room with one of those. I mean, you kind of go, well, I don't want a Kemper. You know, right. it's, it's, I always think of it as, you know, cooking or something. It's like, it's like Italian style cooking is like three ingredients, but they're the best ingredients as opposed to, you know, McDonald's or something or some, where it's like a thousand or one different E numbers to get to something that kind of tastes almost good, you know? Right. Right. Uh, That's I, a good I, analogy. I like yeah. that. <laughs> All right. We've got a couple more questions uh, from the Facebook group here. And this this one I'm actually very interested in myself. Uh, Nick, I'm sorry. Sorry, I always uh, butcher your last name, and you've corrected me like 400 <laughs> times. But I don't. I still am going to screw it up. But I'm pretty sure it's View. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. I think I'd got it this time. He he's a big fan. I know he was excited. I told him you were coming on a long time ago, and he's he's been excited about it ever since. So oh, that's awesome. Well, amen. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to know where you picked up that thumb rake you use in your style. Interesting. I have absolutely no idea how that stuff ended up happening. Really, so I, <laughs> I, play, I play with a thumb pick, and I never really. And I, I'm sure. If you're a fan of my playing, thank you. And those on my kind of Instagram page that watch me play, I should probably apologize. I kind of stopped posting, probably foolishly now, <laughs> videos of me playing more guitar and stuff because I was getting a lot of guitar followers, and I kind of didn't want to be one of these, uh, you know, you know, one of these guitar players that was kind of gurning into their iPhone. I kind of said, I, "It's not really my deal. I want to write songs and make records, and that that'd be my art." I didn't want to go too far down that. So I stopped for quite a long time posting more pictures of gear and playing, um, which now as the, these algorithms change, as we all know, I'm thinking, damn, maybe I should. I should <laughs> but so I have this weird style where I, I use a thumb pick and that was a complete fluke. So I fell in love with early finger picking. I listened to a lot of Bert Yanch and John Renborn, but really I fell in love with early blues picking, which is like Reverend Gary Davis and Fred McDowell and the kind of forefathers of rock and roll. 
And these guys were doing this thumb base pattern using a, a thumb pick. And, and I learned a lot of that stuff through Stefan Grossman, a guitar player. Uh, and I learned a lot of these early ragtime pieces just because I wanted to learn where rock and roll came from and really appreciate what it meant and also to inform my own writing and playing. So I ended up using this thumb pick um, mainly because I was in a band and I wanted to be able to play solos. You know, I, I learned how to, you know, how to shred up and down a pentatonic scale a bit and I wanted to be able to do both. And the thumb pick allowed me to do that. And just naturally over time, I developed some kind of really weird rhythmic things and cross rhythms and these weird pick scrapes um which i don't really know where that came from i think it probably came from a tiny bit of footage of buddy guy playing with big mama thornton he's playing his fifth like his his ash bodied strat uh, on a german tv show and just before it comes in he plays this little bit of guitar through a tweed basement and i was just thought it was the coolest sound and that kind of clip of i don't know 15 seconds of guitar playing um i i often think about i think about especially with my electric guitar playing i think about that that kind of pick scrapes he was doing there and also i think just hendrix you know hendrix had these incredibly fluid moves up and down the electric guitar kind of like no one else um so i i really like fluidity that's what i'm because i'm not much of a practicer when it comes to scales and that sort of thing but i like things to move and and feel organic. Um, so that pick scrape kind of came from that. And it's, yeah, it's pretty cool, but it's pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good answer. I don't know, but <laughs> probably from this very specific moment on German. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it was definitely this. So, yeah. yeah, I like that. No, no, I, uh, it's funny because people ask, I, you know, when we're doing interviews, you know, what are your biggest influences and stuff, especially in guitar playing? And man, I don't listen to a lot of guitar music. I'm not really interested. You know, I, I love certain guitar players and I'm, I'm getting better at it, but I don't sit down and listen to instrumental guitar music. There's a few guitar players I adore. Like recently I've discovered Jim Oblon, who was the guitar, is the drummer for Paul Simon, but also this astonishing guitar player that kind of has this weird, somewhere between Jeff Beck and um, oh, Julian Lage or something like that, if I'm saying that right. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, people like that are fantastic, and Jeff Beck and Peter Green and that, that early stuff. And but I was more interested in people like Lightning Hopkins, who were had and and Bert Jansch, or John Martin rather, who had their own worlds and styles of playing and, and vocabulary that was just completely their own thing. So I never really practiced that much, and you know, I I, I did, and I can do my modes and scales and stuff. And but I never really. I was never really interested in that. I was more interested in making a, a kind of a unique way of playing that was more my thing. Um, so, yeah, so I, my point being is that I think about these little moments as informing my playing more than, you know, sitting down and learning a certain piece of music or, a, you know, 17 tabbed out guitar pieces by who, whoever. I never really did that. I was just more interested in oh, whatever that moment was, that sound. I want to get a little piece of that, you know, I want to mm -hmm. find out to do that myself. Anyway, I'm rambling. <laughs> that makes a ton of sense though. I get it. I get yeah. it. Uh, Nick also has another question for you and I'll see if I can sum this up here. He says, um, his electrics have a real low and spongy tone to them. Elastic. Like most dudes go for high tension on slide. It doesn't seem like that is Chris's thing. I'd really like to know more because he still digs in really hard. So what are you doing for your <laughs> strings and stuff on there? What, what are you doing? 
Yeah, it's really weird. So a lot of people, when you start playing slide, say you need massive like cable strings and a really high action, and which is why I think that puts a ton of people off because you know that's like an entire guitar you have to dedicate to playing slide, and that sucks. And especially on the road and when you're starting out, man, you don't have enough money to be justifying extra guitars just to play slide. So I kind of came to the deal where it's like I wanted to be able to play slide on anything anywhere with anyone. If I was sitting in with people or hanging out or around someone's house and we're jamming, I don't need, I don't want conditions to be absolutely perfect, you know, for me to be able to do it. So, and also I change around so much. If you're on, if we were on tour and, I'm, and I, I can only take one, one guitar, you know, for fly shows, I need to be able to play slide and standard tuning on it. I need to be able to play electric stuff and, you know, cowboy chords so pretty much on my electrics i use standard 10 gauge and on my acoustics i use standard 12 gauge and uh, i use elixir strings on my resonators i actually use electric strings for the pickups which kind of mute some of the high end which is quite nice and makes them feel a little silkier um but yeah i i i think if you look at people like raikuda and you watch their and I've been teaching a lot of this slide stuff over Patreon and the kind of um, the upstrokes and that sort of thing that he does and the note muting is and playing lead lines with your fingers rather than a pick is a really, really good way of developing a much lighter touch and being able to use lighter strings. And also using lighter slides. Again, a lot, a lot of people tend to use heavy steel or brass slides. And if you do that, there's just more pressure down on the string. So you end up bashing into frets and grinding up your frets and, and they're inaccurate. Whereas for, I tend to use um, ceramic slides, which are a lot lighter, which means you can get away with playing them on lighter strings. And especially on electric, uh, I've actually found I really enjoy kind of corseted in, I think that's how you say it, bottle slides, kind of really light glass slides because they're much much lighter so you can be a lot more tactile and smooth and fast with them um and i've just kind of got into the habit of doing that um and also because i'm mainly accompanying myself if i was trying to kind of soar over a band i might want to have some heavy attention and more drive but most of the time it's just you know me and steph so i don't need to do that so yeah i've just kind of adapted to it really i don't use a high action i like a low action on all my guitars um, I've just got used to it. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> just, just carrying on regardless. Even if I'm <laughs> going sod it, I'm not going to do it. But, but I will say on some of my guitars, and I recommend this to people I've been working with as well, is it's putting on a, a 16 gauge top E string just on the top E string. That can be really, really helpful. You can take it off again, but just put it on, and that will really, really help you develop your accuracy and sustain on on your kind of slide lead lines on your top really string. i so Definitely. i struggle really badly with slide i and a bunch of the stuff you said it is it, it is me uh <laughs> i i used to play with a glass slide and i i kept because this is just because i'm dumb i kept knocking them off my amplifier and breaking them yeah, that's, so, why that's why I don't talk with them. I've done it. I've done that so many times. <laughs> so I was like, finally, I was like, forget about it. I'm buying a brass slide, which I have this really nice uh, swamp slide from the rock slide. I really like it. It's a beautiful piece, but it is heavy. 
And uh, I don't have any of my guitar. None of my guitars are quote unquote set up for slide. So they all have pretty low actions, including my resonator. Um, because I like to play them normal too. I like to play them without slide and I don't want yeah. them to be that high, but I'm, I'm terrible at slide. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. I, I've tried so, so many different things and it, whoo, it's bad, but I'm, I'm curious. Why does the 16, why does that 16 gauge high E help? What does yeah, that do? It's just more tension, you know, it's just more tension. So it, it makes it easier to, to fret and to slide and, and the, the, the notes will sustain for longer because it's, there's just more kind of gravity and mass to the string. So that really, really helps just to get sustain and, and then develop your accuracy from there. Like I say, and you can always take it off. You don't have to change the setup of the guitar or anything like that. Right. Um, and yes, ceramic slides. I use these Rocky Mountain slides from this relatively wild bloke that lives out in um, Colorado. He's a really cool dude. He has a website, um, and quite a few people use his stuff, and they're really kind of rustic slides. They don't have flat edges or <laughs> they're kind of bubbly and wonky, and they're just brilliant. And, and they're really light, but they have mass, which definitely, I think, makes it a little easier to work with. And, yeah, it's weird. I, I never really consider myself much of a slide player, but I kind of have, I guess, I guess it's, 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 what, it's what I do, so I don't know why I think that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's so many other great players out there that are so much more technically able than I am. I, I'm a very kind of purist when it comes to that sort of thing. I like melody and, and keeping it simple and, and, and very simple players like your you Rory Gallagher's and Kelly Joe Phelps and, the, like I say, I say, Fred McDowell and people like that. I like uh, that kind of slide stuff, which is relatively simple, you know, compared to what Ariel Posen is doing, something like that. Right. Yeah. That guy is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good. Amazing. All right, man. Well, we've reached the 60 minute mark and I still have two classic questions to get into with you before we sign off. All but, right. <laughs> but, but before we do that, before we do that, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, put up a billboard. If you have something you've wanted to say to a few thousand people, you know, tell your <laughs> you know, great aunt that her casseroles amazing or, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. Now is your time to shine. Well, yeah, I guess we'll just su support your arts. I think now is a really important moment for independent music makers and, and people that are trying to do new things. And if you're guitar lovers as well, you know, I, I'm sure you've spoken about algorithms on Instagram and just try and find people that are doing something really, really interesting and, and get behind them and kind of buy in to what people are doing and, uh, I especially encourage people, I think, and artists to make albums of music and, and to think of it as art rather than just, you know, clicks on a page and, and streams and views, you know, try and find people that are trying to make something that's a little longer lasting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, this is how I think about, because especially with guitar music, it's a big thing for me, man. Like I, 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 um, I don't want guitar music to just become people you know, sharing little clips on TikTok or Instagram. I hope these amazing guitar players will go out and find bands and make records. And it become more than just an exercise and technical ability and uh, and kind of larger things are made from it. And, uh, and get, well, and on that note, I mean, our album's out July 16th. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Can they pre-save it and all that jazz is that an option yeah i think it nearly is yeah i should say that yeah we have some good friends uh, this is what i should really be talking about is our new album really which is 
we were lucky enough to have Marcus King and Jake from Greta Fan Fleet play on the record and some other people. And we're really, really proud of our new album. And it, we've made it totally independently. And hopefully there'll be some more. If you come follow our page, Ida May and Surf Burst, there's going to be a lot of news about the record coming out soon. And uh, we're going to be back on the road, I think, in the US. It's maybe as soon as July, but probably more like uh the fall and we have some really exciting shows to be announced so hopefully we'll get to come and meet some people and hang out by a merch stand and drink some beer and listen to some live music very very soon <laughs> portland portland <laughs> question mark? i would hope so very I very hope so. i love portland so i hope so <laughs> yeah you come see me come yeah, the yeah. Shed and we'll we'll do some dumb things absolutely <laughs> we will do that <laughs> right on man okay classic questions and we'll we'll get on out of here so first one is and this is going to be fun because of what you hinted at earlier what is your favorite boss pedal oh how could i choose just one (laughs) i know i know it's not fair it's not fair well i have a gt7 which i love and the rv6 which i love and we just got the vibrato pedal because we were being we're using one of the cheap behringer knockoffs and i felt guilty so we got one of those which is an amazing pedal a vb2 i think it is mm-hmm. yes Oof. but really if i had to pick it's the blues driver the yeah. blues driver the legendary blues driver. Blues driver. I mean, come on well what else do you need just an amp and a blues driver that's a rock and roll band right there done i love a blues driver nice mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. Last question. And this is where it gets dicey. This is where, you know, families tend to break up over this. It's a big deal. Uh What kind of pizza do you like? Okay. Well, man, American pizza is a whole different planet to what I was used to living in the UK until we moved out to Nashville. So, I don't know. I'd probably go for some for some fancy, fancy kind of schmancy sourdough based mm. thin crust European deal. Oh. Um, uh, I, I have been vegan, but I'm afraid it would probably be covered in some sort of exotic cured Italian meat. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And oh, yeah, and probably some artichoke. Oh, oh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, 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 that sounds. Yeah. yeah. We can eat pizza together. That sounds yeah. fantastic. At <laughs> the same time, I'd have some gigantic Chicago deep crust, everything filled with cheese scenario. I'd do that as well in a heartbeat. <laughs> I, I would I would do that. But like I've said before, I feel like that scratches a different itch than what I'm thinking of when I'm like, I crave pizza. Completely. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's its own. It's its own unique and very fattening, wonderful thing. <laughs> nice man well thank you so much this was a blast i'm so glad we finally did this absolute pleasure man. yeah and thank you for letting me get on my high horse and talk about music as much as i have it's it's, it's been really enjoyable and i hope we get to hang very very soon and drink some craft ale somewhere or something that's what people seem to do in portland so. <laughs> very much so very much so. right on man well we'll uh maybe we'll talk a little bit more about more music stuff here yeah in man peace and love to your audience out there as well thanks so much for having me awesome awesome All right, everybody, for Chris, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right, folks, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please check out Ida May. Please check out Chris's music. It's seriously so good. It really is so good. I would not lead you astray. Go check it out. You'll be very, very glad you did. 
And I mean, you heard him. He's a great guy. What a cool dude. This is a, this is a dream come true to get to talk to people like him. And if you need a little more of this conversation and you would like to help keep the lights on for this particular podcaster, you can go to patreon.com slash tone mob and you will get extra episodes beamed to your ears every week, including more chat with my dude, Chris. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please, 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 please share this with your friends. Share this with people. The show must go on and you can help it go on by telling people about it. There's literally no other way that this works. It's all up to you. Well, and to me too, but it is up to the listeners. That's the reason why this thing is still around, why it's still kicking. Please tell somebody about it. I'd really appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you next time, folks. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.